Um, they're very simple. They're not meant for music. They're mo meant for the spoken voice. It's gonna, we have four more. So we have four up. We have four more. It'll take us a little bit to figure it out. But in general, that was an upgrade? In general? Okay. Um, we're trying to, you know, Rich Williams is very helpful. He describes it as multiple soft speakers rather than a couple loudspeakers. That makes a lot of sense. So we're trying to get the sound closer to your ear and fill it up without having everything crashing together. It's going to take us a little while. Feel free, in a very nice way, to uh, let us know, you know, how we're doing with that. We're trying not to spend more money. We're trying to tweak the stuff that we've got because we think we can do it. It's going to take some time. Week by week, we want to change one thing, not four things, right? Because otherwise, we don't know how it goes. If you sit in the same spot all the time, let us know. If you sit in different spots, let us know if some are better than others. Obviously, we're trying to go for full coverage, but um, we'll just have to see what happens. Okay? Uh, other than that, anything about anything we should talk about? Hi, Val. You're a nice woman. Everybody sign up for preschool. Okay, Mr. Lee, a question? All right, Tabernacle and Eucharistic Adoration. Um, either toward the end of today or next week, I'll, do, I'll talk about Tabernacle and having a Tabernacle and a Eucharistic Adoration. We can talk about that, okay? What else? Anything else just out there we need to talk about? Now, I'm going to show you the same slides I showed you last time and with purpose, because what will happen is somebody, you may nod along while you're in here, but then somebody, you'll bring a friend in or a family member or somebody will walk in the door and they'll say, you know, why does that happen? We have visitors almost every week now. Um, people have sort of heard that you did a good job with this and especially people who were here a lot before just are stunned by you know, the transition. Uh, we did a pretty good job taking the room from one sort of thing, a theater, to another sort of thing, a liturgical church. But what we want is for you to be able to just say a line or two about everything. So, you know, you should be able to say things like, you know, this is the road to Emmaus, you know. Or you should be able to say, you know, the font lies at the sign of the cross. Or you should be able to say, you know, round is eternity and six, you know, things went bad and Jesus too was the new Adam. He dies on the sixth day and makes everything new and rises again on the eighth day. And so um, the sixth day of our sin and the eighth day of our resurrection is tied into the eternity of the font. Or you could go at it another way, which people will always say, I'm learning this now, especially with new brides, like, why is that there? <laughs> Because if you're a bride, you know, you want a straight shot to the altar, right? Um, so, I'm, you know, the answer is, why is that there? Well, that's the door. That's the door to the church. That's how you get in. And so when you think about things, um, you know, you should be able to say just a word or two. You know, you should, you should even be able to say, you know, the reason there's a glass wall here is because you want people in, not out. And that's kind of the first step if people have younger kids. I mean, actually, the first step you notice that we didn't, we didn't build these rooms back here. Um, that was for money's sake. We took those out and saved, I don't know, thirty or $40,000. There was one on each side. Originally, the pastors were going to uh, uh, be on this side, Pastor Nacolites, and maybe um, a place for moms and kids. And then we thought, you know, we don't really want to sequester them, and it might be nice to have more space. So, you know, the first place, if you have a kid who just needs, who's just learned to be mobile and needs to walk, they can wander around back there. That'll be fine. Kind of first level is there. You know, second level is outside in the glass. There are speakers so you can hear. Um, this week, I, you know, I did my annual 
kind of thing at Wheaton College. I always go to the graduate, uh, to a graduate class on um, teaching children the faith. And it's interesting, the great shift over the 10 years I've been doing it now, we were at the great disadvantage when I first came, and now we're seen as the great advantage. Because when I first came there, it was all about getting kids to you know, commit themselves to Jesus. And now all the interest is in things are on fire and, you know, there's smoke and you get to play with money and you dress up and there's a parade and look, there's pictures of your dead relatives as soon as we get $300,000. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, you can look up on the, you know, there's the cross and there's Jesus and, you know, there's, foss there's little fossils in the stone and so all these tactile things that um, engage kids. So, and then the interesting thing though is, you know, obviously you know we didn't put a nursery in by choice. We just decided we wanted kids in. And that actually, when I, I think I told you, when I first came to St. John, my first confirmation class, almost none of them had been to church because the, the thing had been is that kids didn't go to church. They went to Sunday school and their parents went to church. So I had a whole confirmation class of kids who had never been to church, but were going to be confirmed into going to church. Very strange. Now it's the complete opposite, which is kids here, you know. I mean, my favorite thing was a kid a couple of weeks ago who an usher tried to give him a bulletin. He's six. And he said, I don't need that anymore. I got that all memorized. <laughs> now, see, that's what, that's what we're going for. That's what, that's what we're going for. We're going for kids by the time they're about six or seven, saying, yeah, I don't really need that anymore. Now, later, they'll learn about the margin comments and the announcements. But, you know, for now, if a kid, like, says, you know, hey, I got that all in my head, we've actually done the work that we want to do. Um, so anyway, when you, when you just think about the broader thing, you should be able to say, you know, even the things like the pews are curved so that they sort of propel you forward to the altar. I mean, that was meant to be an intimacy decision. You know, it was, it was to, what feels, you know, what feels warmer to you and more intimate? You know, a flat or a curve? Well, you know, a curve. A curve is more intimate, pulls you. Or, you know, another thing is, is um, one of the big things is that this is three times bigger than our previous space. So people were very concerned when we started about, would you come and feel as if you were lost? And so this was designed so that the distance from the pulpit to the balcony is exactly the same distance in the old church from front to back. Do you know that? So the distance in the old church from the pulpit to the back pew is the same distance from here to here, but it seats um, almost three times as many people. Pretty clever little trick, right? Because of the way things were designed, you can get in um, the other place, you know, I know the fire code was 512, but that was, you know, a disaster. Beyond about, you know, 280, 300, that was a very miserable thing. Well, on the floor, you know, we're 500-ish, just, you know, pretty easily. In, the, in this space. So that was kind of cool that you could, you know, sort of double um, and still be up closer. So all of that little stuff um, for you to remember. Karen Crawford, dependable with her questions and never, never shy. What is it, Karen? I've been accused of a lot of things. Shyness is No, that's right. It's one of your gifts. Pay attention. That's, ex that's all it is. So um, I, think I, I think I told you, uh, I think I've told you, I'm sure. Um, in the good old days when there was church discipline, um, <laughs> they would build churches in the shape of the cross, and then they would hang heretics in a cage right here <laughs> and let them die. This is true. 
So when the altar was here, a high altar, and they would ring the bell, Karen, I'm going to have to explain this to you another, another time when I get closer to you, and I will. The priest would be standing here and ring the bell. Everybody would look up and say, there's our salvation. And the heretic couldn't see, but he could see everybody else being saved, the ultimate torture. Everybody else is going to, hell to, everybody else is going to heaven but me. I'm going straight to hell. That's true. So um, it was just a thing that says, you know, say, say the sermon was boring, Karen, and he happened to fall asleep. Um, the, the bell was to rescue you from that. Now, it became an aberration uh, when people just started looking up and stopped going to the Eucharist. And, the, the, you know, a lot of this stuff came in around 900, 1,000. Even with people, just with people, just so you know, I mean, the reason that if you grow up Catholic or have Catholic friends, they often didn't get the chalice. Why is that? It was actually for a good reason that turned into a bad reason. Initially, the priest would drink from the chalice and give it to everybody would receive the chalice. Around, it's disputed, around 900-ish, you know, 1,000-ish. Um, there was such a reverence for the sacrament. This goes a little bit to Eucharistic adoration. There was such a reverence for the sacrament that, that priests in some places started to use a straw to make sure that nothing got spilled. Kind of interesting. But this is where piety can get a little weird. And then people said... Well, if the priest is so concerned about a spill, I'm just a regular guy. I don't handle that all the time or every day. I could spill too. And people started to say, I don't want to touch it because I don't want to spill it. Well, I mean, we don't want you to spill it either, but it does need to touch you. I mean, Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink. It needs to touch you. And so, that's, so there's a piety. This is so often happens with things that go wrong. You know, there's a good piety. It's a good impulse. We don't want to spill it. But then people say, well, we won't have it anymore. And the worst of it then, Karen, is that they would ring the bell and everybody would look up, but nobody would go to communion. So they would watch the priest, and then they'd all go home and say, well, we saw Jesus, and that's good enough. Well, it is good to see Jesus, but Jesus actually says, take, eat, take, drink, so you should take, eat, and take, drink. So now the thing is, is now pushing it all the way through, then we talked last week about, you know, the Germans have their outside bell, and then, you know... um, we use a different kind of bell. We don't use the clinky, clinky bell that we sometimes use at Christmas Eve. Um, and then, you know, people do different things. What we want to be able to do is do things that help, but not let them morph into something that's not good for us. When they morph into something that's not good for us, then you have to stop doing them. So if there's ever a time in the St. John history where the bell keeps you from going to the Eucharist or, you know, morphs into a piety that would keep you away, then you don't want to do it. Or would suggest to you, you know, so the bell for us is the biggest thing just happened. Jesus just came to the altar in a way that he's not present in the word and not present just generally. He came, his body and blood just came to the altar. That's actually what the ringing of the bell is. Ding, 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 pay attention. Jesus just arrived. Okay? Uh, it rings three times because there's three actions in this. The first is the elevation. So it's just done. Here it is. So Jesus, you know, in our hands on the altar. And the last time, then it's a, you bow before it or genuflect. So it's just a mark of reverence. It could be five times. It could be seven times. It could be something else. It could be once. Um, it's just sort of, at that point, you have to kind of pick what tradition you're going to go with. And basically, Nelson and Gainig held me down and punched me till I agreed to three. <laughs> So that was, I mean, there's always a reason for everything, and that was the reason. Yeah, right. So you can, you can, I mean, you have to be careful. I mean, there was a long story in the sacristy this morning about tying up your cat at prayers, and someday I'll tell you that. There's not enough time for that right now. But things can go wrong, 
what we want to do is try to, but then when things go wrong, people say, well, we can't do that anymore. We'll never do that. Well, you can do them if they go right. So it's a law gospel thing. If things are, if things are a violation of what Jesus asked you to do, then you can't have them. But if they proclaim it, extol it, rejoice in it, celebrate it, then you can have them. So for a hundred years, Lutherans in America have been trying to be Presbyterian Methodist. So how many of you, just as a little test, how many of you grew up with a pastor who wore a black robe? See, nothing could be more anti-Lutheran. That is Calvin's Geneva academic gown. And they wore it, reform people wore it to say, I'm not a pastor, I'm a teacher. It's an academic gown. It's, it's, pastors always wore cassock and surplus or alb for, for 2,000 years. That is utter rebellion against all things Lutheran. And yet, you know, the 1900s were difficult to be Lutheran. You know, they spoke German. And guess what? We had two world wars with Germany. So we wouldn't want to look like Germans. And let's try to forget that. Individual cups. That is not a Lutheran thing. That is a, hey, the Presbyterians have got it. And we'd like to be more American like the Presbyterians. You know, those things are, you know, if we just said, hey, we're not going to have individual cups anymore, we'd have to have a voters meeting, and who wants to go through that? So, (laughs) you know, but a black academic gown is just, that's completely foreign to Lutheranism. Even though I know a lot of you, a lot of you grew up with it, it's just, it's just, that's just, you're just saying in a black gown, I'm reformed. That's, that's the message. I'm reformed. And the reason we did that is, people did that is, they wanted to make sure that nobody thought they were Catholic. The problem is there's a downside to people thinking you're, Reformed as well. <laughs> Lutherans are not Methodists. They're not Presbyterians, no matter what people would tell you. you know. So Actually, the reason behind that is academic. Yeah, ac- absolutely. The, the past, uh, in the Presbyterian church, the pastor is called a teaching elder. That's exactly right. Yeah, you have teaching elders and ruling elders. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So, um, and that's to diminish the, the pastoral office. Oh, the, it's very interesting to watch the Catholics now. <laughs> Yes, in some ways, yes. Well, and sorry, I took the other side of the argument there, so I'm not disagreeing with you at that point. Yeah. So um, it's very interesting to watch the Catholics introduce their new liturgy. All sorts of things like um, deacons and nuns apparently had gotten into into the habit of blessing people. So all these rules are coming out like, you're not a pastor, you're not in the office of Christ, stop blessing people. Stop talking when you're delivering the gifts, except for what you're given to say. It's all these very interesting... The Catholics are kind of re, they're taking the opportunity to relearn their rubrics. Um, in the same way, we're taking the opportunity to relearn ours. So this is why we do it. If it ever goes bad, then you can say, well, let's not do that. Or if it ever, if it detracts, if it doesn't help. And that, I just, I mean that not in the way of personal preference. Not everybody's going to like the bell. Not everybody's going to like incense. Not everybody's going to like vestments. Not everybody's going to like everything. The key is to, like any family, be transparent, this is what bothers me and here's why, and then somebody, me, has to say, um, okay, maybe we can all work together and we'll do some of that or none of that. But when people come and say, you can't do that or you must do that, you know the old Lutheran thing. This is true. This is a Lutheran axiom from the 16th century. If you say, I can't, I must, and if you say, I must, I can't, because you put me under the law when I shouldn't be under the law. So we're free to do what we want and we can do it differently than other Lutheran churches even around us without having to say bad things about them or having them say bad things about us. There's different ways to do it. Most fascinating interview last night with John O'Neill from Goldman Sachs with Charlie Rose. Basically, they said, is capitalism the only way? The guy said, 
was, it, was an, it was the most engaging economic thing I've heard in a year, where he said, there's all sorts of different economic systems that would work. In the same way, that's true for the church. There's all sorts of different, you know, liturgical systems that would work more and less. You know, personally, I think some are better than others. Some will help you more. Your time is running out. I mean, you have less heart beats right now than you had at 8 a.m. You've got a lot of work to do before you drop dead. I mean, I'm serious. So my goal is to push you as hard as I can toward being the person that Jesus wants you to be. My goal is to push you as hard as I can toward being fully human. If you want to resist against that, that's, up, that's between you and Jesus. But my goal is to push you as hard as I can. The hardest and most reliable way I know to push you is through the liturgy. It's worked for 2,000 years. And the stuff that's going on now in America, and especially in Lutheranism, is just kind of an aberration. It's an experiment. Guess what? If we wake up in 50 years and it doesn't work, or if we wake up in 50 years and nobody's Lutheran anymore, which is my projection. In 100 years, uh, Lutherans will all be Baptists if they don't change their ways. That's another story for another day. <laughs> but if you walk and talk like a Baptist all the time, if you don't educate your pastors anymore, if you diminish the sacrament, if you abandon the liturgy, pretty soon, guess what? You're Baptist. Not that we don't like Baptists, but you're just not a Lutheran anymore. And what you teach people is how they're going to end up. So my, my guess will be if you're under the age of 30, in about 50 years, you're going to be really cranky for a range of reasons. If you absorbed all this, you'll be really cranky because it doesn't exist anymore in Lutheranism. And uh, if you don't absorb it, you'll be really happy. But whether there'll be a Lutheran church in 100 years is a coin flip. Um, because right now, Lutherans all over the world, when I talked to Klein, a guy despaired of this with him, he said, Lutherans are in the best shape of anybody. He said, Lutheranism in America, the Missouri Senate, is in the best shape of all the Lutherans in the world, to which I'm going, I had hair before he said that. <laughs> like, I mean, like, you're kidding me, right? We're in the best shape of all the Lutherans in the world. You're kidding me, right? Okay, so now I have to, the big breath. Okay, so now all I have to worry about is you. Okay, and this is how I'm worrying about you, which is my job is to deliver all the stuff to you, and your job is to absorb it and become fully human. This is the best way I know to get Jesus on you, which is what the gospel is. My job is to put Jesus on you. I put him on you with word and sacrament, and then that's reinforced by all the things around. So somebody will always say, in fact, I did get one letter because somebody transferred out of the congregation because of the size of the baptismal font. Um, but, and I have it. I mean, I have the letter. It's going to someday when I write that book. You know, I have the letter. But basically, why do you have a big font? Because your baptism is the biggest thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, you can baptize somebody out of a Pyrex dish that you put back in the closet afterwards. It's a baptism if it's water and the Holy Spirit, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Name. Sure it is. But the next time you make brownies in the Pyrex dish, you're thinking, I don't know what you're thinking. But if you... <laughs> If you get baptized here, and then someday, you know, 17, 20 years later, uh, let's go for 20, not 17. You get baptized there, and then you get married, you're like, oh, i got to walk around that because that's the door of the church. That's how I got in. See, all this stuff, it matters. And then, you know, when you go to Florence next time at the Duomo, and you see, you know, the baptistry is bigger than our church building, you'll say, oh, here's one bigger. Maybe ours wasn't so big after all. I mean, that's what you'll say. So the whole notion of kind of a hair-shirt pietism that doesn't rejoice in anything, it's all going away. And for the next 40 or 50 years, um, you can be on the front edge of that. Now, I'm very aware, as one venture capitalist said, to be in venture capitalism, he said, um, 
to be to be too early is the same as being exactly wrong, you know. So you can get too far ahead of the curve and nobody pays any attention. We've kind of settled back into the front edge of the curve. Things are moving toward the liturgy. All over the place, things are moving toward the liturgy. Um, even in my Wheat, when I go to Wheaton College and get my lecture, things are moving toward the liturgy. They had on the wall posters from different things where they're talking about the Lectio Divina, which is the old monastic way of reading scripture. There it is on Wheaton College. Here's how you do it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, happily, I said that in a happy way. You've got to be kidding me like I can't believe that this is, you know, and all this talk about, you know, embodying Christ. It's great stuff. But the church, the Lutheran church has been talking about that for 2,000 years, right? So because we stand in the stream of the early church. And all that's meant to be reflected in the architecture. Okay? Yes, David? That's right. Right, so I'll just repeat that. There are a lot of pieces in any, uh, there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle, and we have to remember how to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Here's the thing, I don't have any leverage with you. I can't force you to put the pieces together. All I can try to is, do is induce you, attract you. So one of the ways we attract you is beauty, community, spirituality, mercy, right? This is what we talked about over the last couple of years. This is meant to reflect that. Our job is to look and listen. Yeah, and do. Right. And question. You can question. People, one, of the, one of the real problems is people don't know how to confront in a nice way. They don't know how to be transparent. They don't know how to say what they're really saying. Oh, yeah. Everything is always couched around in different terms. Just say what you need to say. Yeah, just, just say what you need to say in a nice, kind way. And if you disagree, it's okay to disagree. But the other side is, is at some point, you actually have to make decisions and move on. So click me through, John. So that's kind of the floor plan. If anybody showed you, they should go there. Well, so, okay, keep going past that. That's just to assure you that immersion is possible. Okay, there's your eights with your rounds and your six. Keep going. Uh, that's what we want. We want tactile embodiment. Keep going. Attraction of beauty. There's your road to Emmaus. Good. Let's see what's next. There's Notre Dame, the sort of pressure like, hey, that's, ooh, ah, e. how are we going to get that? Uh, okay, go to the next one. And that's where we started. So here we are, sleepless nights, casted around saying, you know, I'm not a designer. And um, very early in our process, we fired our designer. And uh, there's a whole story behind that. But the designer and the architect couldn't agree with each other, so we let them both go. But then, of course, we're standing around going, oh, no. <laughs> you know, now somebody's got to do it. Well, here's the thing. Never do, um, you know, just be careful. Everybody, a man's got to know his limitations, Right. So, uh, whoa, nobody watches that movie anymore. That's a shame. Uh, dirty hair? You've never seen Dirty Hair? Okay, there you go. Just checking. I'm just, just making sure. So I'm at point number nine, you know, and my point, or I'm at point number ten, actually, top of the page. If you're going to steal something, steal something good. So I'm looking through. These are all, you know, handcrafted, you know, blah, blah. And, you know, these are several thousand dollars to buy these. Uh, and these are just little boxes for... Uh, I think these are reliquaries, actually. Taverson, Mons, and Austin Tor. So you can put um, either some of these, the ones up on top, or you put the elements after the supper. I will come back to it later, but I'm going to come back to it in a longer way because it will make more sense. Or you can put bones in things. Um, so I'm page after page, and you're looking through all these things where artists and craftsmen have built things. We're saying, what could turn into an altar? So in any case, um, you know, I drew this and sent it on and said, you know, and this is, I just want to say kind of a shout to Bruce Klein. What we would do is basically go find something that was beautiful. We'd say, hey, Bruce, can you make that? So here's the thing. Bruce gets a lot of credit. And you, you know, he, do, he did a lot of credit. He gets a lot of credit for taking things 
that were extraordinarily expensive. Like this is SH749301. I don't even know what that 93, let's see, 9301 would be, I think it's that one, 3,700 bucks. You know, that's, you know, we're getting to what we're going to spend in those. So you're spending $4,000 just for that little box that's this big. We're taking that to Bruce and saying, could you turn that into an altar? Why do you want to turn that into an altar? Because we're too scared to design one our own, and we know that that one will actually look okay. Um, Inches. Yeah, it's not very big. It's just a little tiny thing. But it's out of silver, and it's fun, and it's beautiful, and some, you know. So, and this is from Stadelmeyer House. It's a very nice house that actually, I think, went out of business in the course of the recession, which is very sad, because they were, they were a very good house in Germany. Um, it was interesting, because Gaining was always the guy I would have. I'd say, what do you call these guys? He ended up talking to Mr. Petrobone, where he bought it by Petrobone in, in Venice, and Mr. Stadelmeyer in Germany. It's very interesting. He's on a first-name basis with all these guys. I'm like, call Stadelmeyer, see what it'll do for us. It was just so interesting, because you think you can't get to these guys, but you actually can. All right, click to the next one. So we said, you know, that's what we're looking for. Uh, and this story you know. So w these guys, you know, on the, right, on the left is Marson, our iron worker. He did all the iron work in the place. And we basically said, see this box? See these drawings? Make that. So it's like you go out to his muffler shop in Addison, where he has all these hot, pokey things. That's hot. That smashes. That pokey. It's great. He's like, you could bring the kids out to see it. We're like, I don't think we're going to bring the kids out. <laughs> It'll be great. They'll think this is fun. Click ahead. See what happened. So you see him. So, I mean, that's what's going on. Hey, aren't you supposed to have a cover on that? OSHA. Anybody from OSHA? Okay. <laughs> Keep going. You know, let's get some stuff. Okay, let's bang it. So, you know, I mean, that, that, he's like, hey, this is red hot. I'm like, yeah, that's red hot. So keep going. That's the, that's the crossroad. He's got that thing, and he's banging it. And, you know, I, I would think you'd need two panes of bulletproof glass and a couple more goggles on before you do something. But, no, he just starts banging it. And, you know, it's like, I mean, he's a blacksmith. That's what he is. Go ahead. Um, so there was the first thing. And he's like, hey, you want to come see this? So uh, now there's a couple things I want you to notice. Um, one is, you can see, do you see how it's almost like bricks being stacked up right there? Can you see that? Which is basically, you can't see that so much on the outside, but if you get close to it, you can. There's this notion of, um, you know, what you're going to make it, uh, what you're going to make it from. There's a long tradition in the church of altars that are stone, altars that are wood, and altars that are metal. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I told you before, I, I did have some people say, metal? Square, metal, the Lord doesn't like that. Then I'm thinking, you know, here's number 11. So in the new space, intimacy was a concern, right? As were the senses. So distance made a difference, and we're rehabbing. So how are we going to do that? If we would put a long altar where our current altar is, what happens? If you make a long altar, what happens? Yeah, you divide. You cut the front from the back. The other thing is, is you have to extend the rail in some sense, and um, you can't get as many people there. Okay? And we pulled, you know, we pushed and pulled repeatedly. Which way should it go? Pushing and pulling. So in the end, you know, what happened is, is that uh, in the Middle Ages, you know, they even got, I think at one article I said, um, uh, you know, the perfect altar is 13 feet, 10 and a half inches long. I'm like, okay, somebody's written a book. That's what you should have. But the point was it was supposed to look like a tomb, you know, you put the body inside. And have you been there? You've been to places. Have you seen where people are buried underneath an altar? You ever seen that? Next time you go to the Vatican, I got in trouble last time. I was there. There's a pope there under an altar with glass, and I was talking by him. And then one of those guys in the fancy uniforms did this to me. 
which means no talking by the altar where the Pope is buried. I'm like, okay, I was just curious because he should be more shriveled up than that and stuff. But, you know, <laughs> he should. You think that's one of the, actually, this is just for you. One of the signs of sainthood is that people don't shrivel. Did you know this? People don't die and they, and they don't get involved and they just sort of, they don't decompose or they don't decompose as rapidly as you or I would because you're a bunch of damn sinners, so believe me, you'll be dust by noon. But you know what? <laughs> if you're a pope, you know, apparently you don't decompose. So I'm, of course, going like this, like, how come he's not blah, blah? And then, of course, so just say your prayers and be good. If you get a long altar, you're emphasizing the tombness or the, what's the other thing that you get if you've got a long altar? What are you emphasizing? The one next door, what did that look like to you? A kitchen table, yeah, which is how it was designed. It was designed, I saw some early plans. It was meant to look like a kitchen table, um, which isn't wrong. It's just not the first thing Lutherans say. We do say it's a table. Jesus is host and he gives himself at table. We, we say that. Um, a tomb, you know, sort of emphasizes the deafness of it. Um, the squareness pulls out the historicity of what happened in the Old Testament, that our altar is the same altar that was there. We have an echo of it. Oftentimes with architecture, with design, you're just trying to get an echo. Hey, did you remember when? You know, A lot of these things are remember whens. Here's the thing. If you don't want to believe that Easter is the eighth day, that's fine with me. You're still going to go to heaven. Life's going to be good. But your life is a lot more fun if you believe it's the eighth day. So when you build a font, boom, you put eight bursts from it or put eight sides on it, however you do it. You know, again, if, if a square isn't your cup of tea, it's okay. There was a very functional reason for it. We didn't want to cut the back off from the front. We wanted to have as long a rail as we could. That was one of the things that the congregation asked for. We want communion to be more smooth, more room to move. How many of you knocked over a poinsettia at Christmas? Come on. Yeah. Or a Christmas tree. I even had a Christmas tree go down one time in one service. You know, your dress gets hooked on the tree, and you're walking away, and suddenly it's like, <laughs> so it was like, give us more room and make it more. So, you know, we went to the, you know, the NASCAR left lap thing. We just, you know, all the way around. The easiest way to do that was a square. Now, just for your own consolation, and, and the budget was really tight, too. You know, the budget wasn't a big budget when we started doing this. So, just for your own consolation, look at this from Scripture. And I should have given you another verse because I didn't, I cheated you here. You shall make the altar, this is under number 11, for the tabernacle. So this is, we're out of Egypt, and we're going to have our own thing, of acacia wood, five by five, square by three. Which, if you put a measure on it, ours is five by five. It's about two inches over three, because there is, somebody at the Home Depot said, that's how high you make a counter. I don't know, it's like 38 inches. But in any case, you know, roughly our, our altar is the same it's the same ratio as this in the tabernacle. Now, here's the other thing. Does anybody know? This will be for extra credit and, you know, free coffee from now till the end of the year. Uh, does anybody know uh, what the next verse, Exodus 27, 2 says? Marilyn, you big show off. And also in need of free coffee. Oh, you'll get the alternate prize, mothballs. We have a year's supply of mothballs. <laughs> so go ahead. What's it say? Put some horns on it, yeah. So that's where you grab the horn of the altar and you get sanctuary. If you get to the horn of the altar, it's like playing tag. If you kill somebody, but if you get to the horn of the altar, they can't kill you as long as you're holding on. Potty break, out to lunch, you're on your own. But as long as you're holding on, they can't kill you, right? That's where the word sanctus, holy. And we originally, in the original design, we had the steps saying sanctus, sanctus, sanctus going up and then it dropped out. 
but sanctus goes to holy, goes to sanctuary, goes to holy space, goes to altar, which is, if you're a criminal, you find sanctuary in the church. That's where it comes from, okay? So Exodus 2. Put some horns on it, and then what? There you go, that's all I need. So actually, in the tabernacle, they had a metal altar. So ours is kind of an echo, it's not exact, but it's five by five by three in metal. Exodus 27, in the tabernacle, was five by five by three, you know, of metal. So, and then the, the temple, here's the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon made an altar of bronze, of metal. Now how many of you, did any of you grow up with a metal altar? Anybody? See, I didn't either. What was your, how many of you had a wood altar? How many of you had a stone altar? How many of you had a wood altar painted to look like stone? <laughs> Didn't anybody else have that? It wasn't uncommon. I've seen them. They, you paint them to look like stone because you can't, you can't get, the, get the capital campaign up high enough. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so Solomon made an altar of bronze for the new temple in Jerusalem, 20 by 20 by 10, which is basically 5 by 5 by 2 and a half. So it's off a little bit. But in any case... Um, if people rebelled against the shape, you have some a biblical echo at least. doesn't mean it was best. It was chosen for utility. It was chosen for space. It was chosen for the broader thing of, of not cutting the place in half. The other thing is, I should just say this. Uh, did I ever tell you, the first time I walked through with the electrician, this is after you kind of gutted it, and then the electrician, uh, an early electrician walked through, and he goes, this is great. He said, every church should have a big gym. I'm like, uh, I'm like, ah, you know, so part of the goal was also to stretch the space this way. Naturally, the space is very wide, but very wide is kind of theater. Very wide is, you know, outdoor, you know, cathedrals go like this. Churches tend to go up. You're toward heaven. And, um, you know, so the little things like, you know, raising the altar out of the middle or wrapping the columns and putting that kind of cool, that was Bruce's idea, putting that cool crown molding. What am I going to call that? The crawl space up on the top. That made everything feel like it was moving up. It doesn't feel like it used to feel like this. The whole point was to make it go like this, right? And not and an altar that goes like this would make it feel like this. We're trying to make it feel like, like this. So um, basically what happens is we felt comfortable at the point when we got to square and got to metal. Here's the deal. The, the most amazing thing when you're doing this kind of stuff, so we would, I'd, you know, we'd go look for organs, and we'd, we'd call the pipe organ. We'd say, we, we want your teeny tiny, just the little tiniest starter pipe organ. How much will that be? A million dollars. We're like, no, no, you didn't understand the question, because we want the small, small pipe organ, and we're going to use used part. How much is that? That's going to be a million dollars. Those started a million dollars. You know, that, that you go over there, they started a million. They go up from there. If you want air it's got, you know, we're like, you got to be kidding me. And this was another thing. I mean, you know, Pastor Ganey on this one, too. I mean, he was able to, um, he and Joe Holm, I mean, sitting around with the two of them, it was like deal news every minute, <laughs> you know. Uh, let me just say that, you know, the, 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 original, the end price on that organ was well less than half of that. It's going to be about $350,000 for a much more organ. And Bruce, you know, was able to get the pipes from his old church down in the city, the old family church that closed down, so we got a bonus kind of in the middle. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. Well, in the same way, we would say, we want a stone altar. People would say, where do stone altars start? For the smallest one, the starter stone altar, like some gravel put together with some plaque? That's $60,000. We're like, $60,000? 
Then we say, how about a wood alder? Well, that'd be $40,000. We're like, you people are nuts. So, I mean, just so you know, um, that was $19,000. So uh, part, of the, part of the challenge was, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. I mean, we spent, you know, a couple of million bucks, but that's not a lot of money for what we were doing. And when you get to these things and, and, and you go, you walk in and they say, how much will that be? Well, that'll be a million dollars. We're like, no, you don't understand. The initial budget is 1.7 million. How much will the pipe be? It'll be a million dollars. You're like, million, million, big number, lots of zeros. So in the same way with this, um, we sort of took, uh, we, we've had to figure a way that we could get a substantial alter that would be cheaper. So there you go. It's welded together by bits and then pounded out. What we were trying to do, this is under number 12, um, the old folklore, had anybody ever heard this? Um, that the way you build a church, the first place I learned this is that somebody said to me, you have a basement under your altar. Have you ever heard this? You have a basement under your altar? And then I did, and then someone who I quite respect kind of shook their head like this. Poor boy, you know. I'm like, what's it? Have you ever heard of this tradition where you take a stone and you plant it in the mud and you build the church around it? Has anybody ever heard of that? It comes out of the Old Testament tradition that you'll often see where they're making a stone altar, where they pick a stone or they drop some stones some places and then everything happens around it. Well, I always thought this was folklore until I went to Chad Kendall's ordination. Do you know, remember Chad Kendall, the vicar? So he's out in Storm Lake, and I was preaching for this thing. I mean, this is out in the middle of nowhere in Iowa, you know, way. And I sit down, you know, and there's the AAL placemat, and there's pictures from the history of the church, and there's a picture of a crane lifting up a big stone and dropping it in the mud. And then they built the church around it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding i got to go back and tell all those people, I said, liar, you're all lying. i got to go back and apologize. There's actually an instance where, you know, apparently you drop the, you shave the top off, you build the church around it. So there is this tradition, you just didn't have a basement. Kind of that was, rem that was the echo. You don't have a basement under the altar. So you can have a basement, but it just doesn't extend all the way to this. Now, it's more difficult, of course, when your altar is in the center with all the architecture that came in across the course of the last century. So anyway, um, unless you have, unless you're willing to talk in very big numbers, $50,000, $100,000, $150,000, all that stuff is just completely out of reach. Um, so what we did is we tried to find something that we could echo liturgically, the tabernacle and the temple. And then we tried to use a, um, a what you, you want to do is you want to use materials that are um, authentic. So you know when you go into a cathedral, you can tell whether or not um, the pillars are, are real stone or not. Do you know how you tell? Who knows? Touch it. And if you touch it, knocking doesn't always work. Knocking does, it can work, but if they do a good job, knocking won't always work. How do you know if it's, it's a stone pillar or not? It's cold, yeah. So you're geniuses. Yeah, you touch it, it's cold. So when you go, sometimes you'll go into, into churches and they have these beautiful stone pillars. You're like, how did they afford that? You touch it, it's warm. Well, it's because it's paint, it's faux. It's, which doesn't make it wrong, necessarily. It's just that you have to be careful that you don't get so much in imitation that everything feels like imitation, especially when we're entering an era where authenticity is what matters. So we're thinking to ourselves, what can we do that's biblical? What can we do that we can afford? What can we do that will sort of respect the scriptures? What can we do that... Um, doesn't break the budget and yet sort of goes forward and recognizes that we're in a postmodern age. You know, most of us will be dead by the time postmodernism really takes hold. Things kind of start in academics and they kind of move, you know, they kind of move 
you know, down. So postmodernism was alive in universities in the 40s and 50s already, 60s. You know, then with the drop of the Berlin Wall, it kind of gets this big push. But, and now most people that are under 20 or 21, they're postmoderns, they're POMOs, they don't even really know it. But it's, it's like, you know, if you describe what they are interested in, they sort of just, they, they just, you know. And then someday, they'll, we had a suggestion that we change the 20-somethings to something POMO. The problem is, I don't know if 20-somethings self-identify as postmoderns yet. Like if I said, would all the POMOs stand up? You know, nobody stands up, and yet there's 15 of them in the room, you see. So at some point, we had to figure out what would be good for the next, you know, 50 or 100 years until somebody else figures it out. Yes? I see a parable in there. Do you? Yes. You got to write a whole essay for the New Yorker on that or something. <laughs> Although I take your point, which is we're not all the same and we're, we're put together in a way that we're different. Right. And there is the biblical bit for that, you know, and, and, right? And, it's put, and we're put together in a way to let the whole church stand true. Right. So I'll get my wife fired over this, but um, I'll just now nobody. Li- now I'll turn off my microphone anyway. Not who fight, but who recognize their family, and the family has order, and that all things put together, and everybody gets something. Everybody, nobody gets their way entirely, but everybody gets something. And if you can knit that together, where we can say, you know, I don't exactly wouldn't do it the way you would do it, but, you know, I recognize you need to have some skin in the game, so you can have that one. We need to all do that. The worst thing you can have in a church is when everybody says, I'm going to have my way, and I'm going to have all of it, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you tell me I can't, I must. And if you tell me I must, I can't. It's the most Lutheran thing there is. Uh, Wow, okay. Um, Go to the next picture. I don't even know what the next picture is. Oh, that was, I just sort of give you that. I'll do this real quickly. Um, You know, one of the fun things is, is we were trying to get this. So you basically have this metal that is, so here's what happens. You have a shape that is very biblical. You have um, a texture that can go a couple of ways. It's both bricks like stone got built up when they were cut, but it's also hammered like um, it's also hammered like uh, Exodus 27:2, which I didn't give you. You know, you hammer the bronze on, but you also get go to the next picture. Uh, ooh, ah, e, ah, ooh. That's not the next picture I thought I was going to. So I'm going to stop there because I don't have time to reload. I'll just put this in your head and I'll show you next week. You actually get all the similar texture to a mosaic. And w- by using a mosaic texture, early churches that were built, do you see a mosaic there? Just like four ahead? Can you see all four of them? No, you can't right there. Click ahead. Let's see. Keep going. We'll do this next week. There you go. When you go to famous, uh, you know, there's very famous churches. St. Mark's in Venice is a great example where the entire interior, you know, it's 20 times bigger than our place, is made of these little tiny mosaics that are as big as your thumbnail. Well, you know, that's a, that's a very ancient pattern. So with the hammering, you get kind of an Old Testament echo, and you also get this mosaic, which then is postmodernly appealing. You get this ancient, modern thing going on. And that's, that's kind of where we wanted to go. We wanted to get this sense of we're tied to the, the, the scriptures. We're tied to the Old Testament church. We're tied to the New Testament church. We're tied to the early church. That's us. Lutherans have always said, hey, we didn't change. Everybody else changed. Lutherans have always said, and that's the reason in the margin comments, we try always to give you an early church, medieval church, Reformation church, and modern church, 
trying to show you that the same line comes all the way to Jesus through the church to us. We've always said, hey, we're, we're the ones who didn't deviate. We've always said that, um, even while we have some things we need to clean up. We'll come back to this, but um, there's a couple more things to do. So, Larry, you've got to remind me to talk about tabernacle and adoration. I want to talk about how the altar top is made. You've got all this stuff. And about how um, it's all put together, okay? But we do have to go. So, thanks for all that. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you next week.